American sensibilities have always meant that we love a good story about a behind-the-scenes do-gooder. However, as the coronavirus pandemic has worn on, and good news has seemed at times hard to come by, it does feel like we've sort of collectively anti-hero genre. But two of my favorite unsung heroes in all of scripture are found in our text today from the very beginning of the Exodus story. However, these are two women, Puah and Shifra, midwives to the Hebrews, who are cast as heroes precisely for what they did not do when faced with unprecedented and incredibly difficult circumstances. And in fact, while in my opinion, Pua and Shifra steal the show, in this story, they are only a part of a whole chorus of women making up the unsung heroes of the Exodus, all encapsulated here in the first two chapters of this book. The two midwives defy Pharaoh first, but they are followed by Moses' mother, who places Moses in the basket in the reeds, by his sister Miriam, who accompanies him until he finds safekeeping, and by the Pharaoh's own daughter, who allows compassion to win out over nationalist loyalties and tribal fear. In the interest of giving these unsung heroes a leading role, especially since many of us may have only breezed past their one mention here in the first chapter of Exodus, perhaps it would be most helpful to tell the midwives' story from their perspective. So let's begin. Now there arose a tyrant over Egypt who turned a blind eye to the past in favor of his own self-interest in the present. 
He allowed fear to drive his political policies and an entire ethnic group paid the price. These are the ones we would come to know as the people of God, the Hebrews. The chief midwives to the Hebrews, Shifra and Puah, were strong women, though likely not Hebrews themselves, or else the Pharaoh would not have thought to entrust them with the heinous task he was about to place on their shoulders. You see, the Pharaoh had noticed that the Hebrews were growing in number, and he was beginning to let fear drive his thinking. At best, he considered, should the day come, the Hebrews might choose to resettle further north, where they could serve their own interests instead of his. And that would certainly be a financial blow. At worst, they might even gain enough strength and numbers to overthrow him in his own land, and that was unthinkable. And so, the Pharaoh began a smear campaign against the Hebrews. And it led where smear campaigns always do, toward the dehumanization of his enemy. Only by somehow managing to psychologically distance himself from an entire people group could a ruler conceive of making the kind of request he was about to make of these midwives. We can imagine that it was even sort of off the books at this point. Not yet public policy as it would become when this plan didn't pan out. Right now, the Pharaoh just wanted a verbal agreement with the midwives. As you go about your work, if the infant's a girl, what is that to me? Let her live. But if on that birthing stool they could see that the child was a boy, he was to be killed. I imagine that as Shifra and Pua walked stunned away from the royal court that day, they felt the conflict already beginning to consume them. First on their minds, of course, was the matter of the murder they were being asked to commit, the crime itself, and one on such a large scale. Then too, there was the reality that they were likely not the only two midwives for the entire Hebrew population, but instead overseers of all the ranks of midwives who worked with the Hebrew women. And so in that moment, they felt too the anticipation of multiplying the guilt of this atrocity they'd been assigned, not only by the number of mothers they would attend, but they would carry the weight of passing on that murderous task to all the midwives who reported to them. That weight alone had to be crushing. And then there was the other thing. The notion they couldn't even quite bring themselves to voice out loud, though they both felt it. It chewed on them 
as they went back to their rounds, minds in a blur, tending to the pregnant women in their care as if by rote. It was still there, gnawing on them later that evening, as they were called in to attend for the first birth since the Pharaoh's edict had been laid on them. In the low lamplight of that sacred room, her own hands trembling, Shifra strained to hold the mother steady, not even knowing in that moment what she would do when the time came. Deep breathing for both mother and midwife. And when finally the child was born and Shifra placed into Pua's arms a perfect, healthy little girl. They looked deeply into one another's eyes. And each confirmed what the other had come to know in that moment. It was something about the tragic irony of their fate as women. The sense of scorching indignation that this infant child who held all the power and potential of the stars in her being, but who would become a woman and not a man, was in the eyes of the Pharaoh no more threat to him alive than she was dead. It was a sickening feeling, a sharp tearing at the moral fabric of their being, the feeling that on the one hand, this was no jealousy. Never in a million years would they wish a death sentence on this child. And at the same time, the feeling of anger rising in them like a cobra ready to strike. How dare he overlook me, underestimate us. And then in an instant, the shame that immediately rushed in for even having the thought at all. And then the rage at being put in a position to have to consider any of it in the first place. And in that moment, the child let out her first cry. And in that moment, the midwives knew what their work would be. They would deliver the children of the Hebrews, all of them, because in their faces they could see the image of God, male and female. They would knowingly lie to Pharaoh using against him the very patriarchal assumptions that had inflamed their spirits. They would play the mystified woman. Those Hebrew women, they're just too quick for us. And although in the end, the Pharaoh's wrath would find a way to achieve its end, the midwives could not stave off forever the horror that was to come. By the time that it did, they had already set in motion the revolution that would change everything. 
It is no wonder that out of the fury born of this deep and unspeakable wound they carried came the first pulsing of the tidal wave of defiance that would eventually sweep Moses in the basket down the river, that would sweep the nation of Israel off their feet and across the sea toward liberation. It is no wonder that if, as scholars believe, Shifra and Pua weren't Hebrew but Egyptian, this rising spirit of revolt was enough to unite women across the lines of race and ethnicity to work for the good together in common cause. It is no wonder that with this subversive spirit in the air, Moses' mother was inspired to do what she needed to do to ensure the survival of her child keeping watch over the Pharaoh's daughter so that she knew when and where the princess would be, placing Moses in a basket in the reeds, empowering her own daughter, Miriam, to guide her brother to safety. And it is no wonder that the Pharaoh's own daughter knew enough of this wound, of the great overlooking that she willingly chose the bond of her shared womanhood over the order of her father, the king, when she opened the basket and pulled the child from the water. Her father had raged about the midwives and the Hebrews often enough that she knew who this child was. She knew what kind of choice she had made. Perhaps she even whispered a prayer of thanksgiving for Puah and Shifra, who had delivered this child as she lifted him into her arms and called him, my son. There is a reason unsung heroes often go unsung, uncelebrated. It usually has to do with the size of their sphere of influence. Those who are in a position of authority or power over multitudes are never lacking in praise for their good work. But the reason stories of unsung heroes touch us so deeply is because we can relate to feeling like we don't have much control, much say over our own lives or the lives of those around us. We too feel like our sphere of influence is small, and so our efforts too go unsung. I imagine, though, that most of us do know what it is to be angry. And not just angry in a self-justifying or self-righteous kind of way. This isn't about nursing grudges or harboring resentment. This is about anger that is grounded in love. What is it that causes the cobra in you to rise up ready to strike 
on behalf of another? What injustice lights a fire in you deep in your bones? Where is the holy anger in you that hungers and thirsts for the justice of God? The invitation of the midwives is to become aware of that holy anger, to harness it, and then to find the place where that anger overlaps with whatever sphere of influence we call our own, no matter how large or how small. The stories of the unsung heroes, heroines of the Exodus, are not pleasant or heartwarming tales as unsung hero stories tend to be. But here's to the angry ones, the ones who made hard choices the ones who took an unbelievable risk, the ones who set a nation on the path toward liberation. May we too find the courage to harness our anger and to use it to set our feet and all those around us on the path toward freedom, the path that leads toward a merciful justice, justice in the name of love. Amen.
Good morning, and welcome to Northminster. Here we recognize the Spirit of God shining through the unique, transparent vessel of each person, casting a light onto the world that only you can cast. So we are grateful for your presence here with us this morning. We're gathered here in this sanctuary in time, midway through the season after Pentecost, the season of ordinary time. And as extraordinary as this season may be this time around, we are mindful of the gift of marking this extraordinary season with this ordinary practice of meeting here week after week to ground ourselves in love during this time together. This week, as we do every week, we will engage in a liturgy to help us to love ourselves and love the world, to move us closer to the image of Christ. But for that liturgy to actually do what it's meant to do, it requires engagement. Even though we're on a screen, for this hour to be worth your time, you really can't treat this like a TV show. It requires presence and response. So there are three recommendations that we're going to make to help us engage this time better this morning. First, it may be a good idea, as much as it hurts, to put your phone in a different room for a while. Uh, nothing of this age robs us of presence like the lure of a phone screen in our pocket. Second, while you're putting your phone away, take a moment to find a pen and some paper so that you can engage with the reflection following the sermon and discover its implications for you right now. And finally, if you'd like to participate in communion with the greater body of believers this morning, then go into your kitchen and find something to eat or drink following the words of institution. It is, after all, all Christ. Now please join me in blessing this time together. May we enter this hour in courage. May we enter this hour in hope. May we enter this hour in pursuit of the justice of God, which is grounded in love. Amen. beginning hymn this morning is one that is well known and the writing of the poetry from Isaac Watts someone who wrote hundreds of hymn texts this one in 1719 and the text was relevant then as it is today that the love and help and mercy of the God the powerful God was with them in the past and is still with us working in our lives today Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come.
When it comes to questions of justice, the first question that many of us want to ask is, what should I do? As though there were a prescribed list of instructions laid out for a better world. If you are looking for something quick to check off a list or to put a band-aid over something, then sure, there may well be specific actions that someone could recommend to you. But if you're interested in contributing to the work of justice, the first work we must do is to become justice. We must become love. The first work that we must do is to make ourselves transparent to the Spirit of God from whom justice and resilience flows naturally in every action. Now this involves being still and being alone, looking deeply at the parts of ourselves that we'd rather ignore. It requires feeling our feelings and accepting ourselves and all manner of work that our egos would really rather we avoid. For the sake of doing this work, this morning we're going to engage in a loving-kindness prayer, learning the art of letting go of resentment or fear and allowing love to flow through us. So to begin this practice, if you haven't already, please put your phone out of sight and find a comfortable position. Put your feet on the floor, rest your hands on your legs, and make sure that your back is straight. And then allow your eyes to close and take three deep breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth. I'm going to ring a bell and I want us to try to exhale for as long as the bell is ringing. Now, with your body relaxed and your eyes closed, I invite you to call to mind someone who you love very much. It could be a child, a friend, or a relative. Someone you would gladly embrace and receive an embrace from. Take a moment to hold that person in your heart space. And then either out loud or to yourself, say these words, I love you just the way you are. May you be happy. May you be healthy. Now take a moment to notice how that makes you feel to hold that person and offer that prayer. How does it feel in your body? Now hold yourself in your heart for a moment. And again, pray these words. 
I love you just the way you are. May you be happy. May you be healthy. If it is difficult to pray these words, let go of whatever is holding you back, whatever judgment or doubt that keeps them from being true. You can always pick them back up later, but for now, just pretend if you have to. Drop the need to fix or change. You are just as you are in this moment, and that cannot change. So for this exercise, what if you were to just take a deep breath and pray these words over yourself? I love you just the way you are. May you be happy. May you be healthy. Take a moment to notice how this makes you feel in your body. Now, call to mind someone that you don't know very well. It can be an acquaintance or someone from church that you haven't gotten to know. Pick one face and hold that face in your heart. And again, say these words. I love you just the way you are. May you be happy May you be healthy. Take a moment to notice how this makes you feel in your body. Now call to mind someone that you don't know that you know personally, but you don't like very much. Someone who has wronged you or you have trouble trusting. Hold that person in your heart space. And again, pray these words. I love you just as you are. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And again, if it's difficult to pray these words, then let go of whatever is holding you back, whatever judgment or doubt that keeps them from being true. Drop the need to fix or change. You can always pick them right back up after we're done, but just for now, take a deep breath and imagine them as the child that they are inside. Pray these words and just see what it does. 
I love you just the way you are. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And take a moment to notice how this makes you feel in your body. Now call to mind someone that you don't know personally, but feel disdain towards. This can be a political figure or someone you feel has done great wrong. And again, holding them in your heart space, pray these words. I love you just the way you are. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And once more, if it's difficult to pray these words, let go of whatever is holding you back just for this moment. You can always pick them back up after we're done, but just for now, drop the story around this person. See the child. Pray these words and see what it does in you. I love you just the way you are. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And take a moment to notice how this makes you feel in your body. Now, as best you can, hold all of humanity in your heart. Hold everyone, every expression of God that exists in every form, every color, every gender. And again, pray these words. I love you just the way you are. May you be happy. May you be healthy. Take a moment to notice how this makes you feel in your body. If it's authentic for you to do so, Take a moment to offer gratitude for how you're feeling and what you've experienced.
And whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and open your eyes. In this way, may we become agents of the love that heals all injustice and reconciles all people to God. Amen. A reading from the book of Exodus. Now a new Pharaoh arose over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, look at how powerful the Israelites have become and how they outnumber us. We need to deal shrewdly with their increase or else in time of war, they might turn against us and join our enemy and so escape out of the country. So they oppressed the Israelites with overseers who put them to forced labor. And with them, they built the storage cities of Pitom and Ramesses. Yet the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and burst forth until the Egyptians dreaded the Israelites. So they made the Israelites utterly subservient with hard labor, brick and mortar work, and every kind of field work. The Egyptians were merciless in subjugating them with crushing labor. Pharaoh spoke to the midwives of the Hebrews. One was Shifra and the other Pua and said, when you assist the Hebrew children in childbirth, examine them on the birthing stool. If the baby is a boy, kill it. If it is a girl, let it live. But the midwives were God-fearing women and they ignored Pharaoh's instructions and let the male babies live. So Pharaoh summoned the midwives and asked why they let the male babies live. The midwives responded, these Hebrew women are different from Egyptian women. They are more robust and deliver even before the midwife arrives. God rewarded the midwives and the people increased in numbers and in power. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God.
I've come across a fair amount of unsung hero stories as I've scrolled through my newsfeed lately. Our American sensibilities have always meant that we love a good story about a behind-the-scenes do-gooder. However, as the coronavirus pandemic has worn on and good news has seemed at times hard to come by, it does feel like we've sort of collectively agreed on an unspoken agreement to share more and more good news every chance we get. And so we share them, these stories of not just doctors and nurses, but lab technicians working long shifts to facilitate the surge in testing that's necessary so that we can fight this virus. Or the sanitation and waste workers, without whom all the lengthy new protocols for cleaning and disinfecting could not take place. Or the story of the curbside greeter at the cancer center, who had been accustomed to escorting the same patients to the door week after week, whose sign now reads, Corona made me stop hugging you, but God knows I still love you. We love unsung heroes, and for good reason. In the case of these recent examples, one of the things that makes their story compelling is the commitment of these individuals to doing their work to the best of their ability without notice or acclaim, despite unprecedented and incredibly difficult circumstances. The Bible is full of hero stories, both sung and unsung, and more often something more closely resembling the anti-hero genre. But two of my favorite unsung heroes in all of scripture are found in our text today from the very beginning of the Exodus story. However, these are two women, Puah and Shifra, midwives to the Hebrews, who are cast as heroes precisely for what they did not do when faced with unprecedented and incredibly difficult circumstances. And in fact, while in my opinion, Pua and Shifra steal the show, in this story, they are only a part of a whole chorus of women making up the unsung heroes of the Exodus, all encapsulated here in the first two chapters of this book. The two midwives defy Pharaoh first, but they are followed by Moses's mother, who places Moses in the basket in the reeds, by his sister Miriam, who accompanies him until he finds safekeeping, and by the Pharaoh's own daughter, who allows compassion to win out over nationalist loyalties and tribal fear. In the interest of giving these unsung heroes a leading role, especially since many of us may have only breezed past their one mention here in the first chapter of Exodus, perhaps it would be most helpful to tell the midwives' story from their perspective. So let's begin. Now there arose a tyrant over Egypt 
who turned a blind eye to the past in favor of his own self-interest in the present. He allowed fear to drive his political policies and an entire ethnic group paid the price. These are the ones we would come to know as the people of God, the Hebrews. The chief midwives to the Hebrews, Shifra and Puah, were strong women, though likely not Hebrews themselves, or else the Pharaoh would not have thought to entrust them with the heinous task he was about to place on their shoulders. You see, the Pharaoh had noticed that the Hebrews were growing in number, and he was beginning to let fear drive his thinking. At best, he considered, should the day come, the Hebrews might choose to resettle further north, where they could serve their own interests instead of his. And that would certainly be a financial blow. At worst, they might even gain enough strength and numbers to overthrow him in his own land, and that was unthinkable. And so, the Pharaoh began a smear campaign against the Hebrews. And it led where smear campaigns always do, toward the dehumanization of his enemy. Only by somehow managing to psychologically distance himself from an entire people group could a ruler conceive of making the kind of request he was about to make of these midwives. We can imagine that it was even sort of off the books at this point. Not yet public policy as it would become when this plan didn't pan out. Right now, the Pharaoh just wanted a verbal agreement with the midwives. As you go about your work, if the infant's a girl, what is that to me? Let her live. But if on that birthing stool they could see that the child was a boy, he was to be killed. I imagine that as Shifra and Pua walked stunned away from the royal court that day, they felt the conflict already beginning to consume them. First on their minds, of course, was the matter of the murder they were being asked to commit, the crime itself, and one on such a large scale. Then too, there was the reality that they were likely not the only two midwives for the entire Hebrew population, but instead overseers of all the ranks of midwives who worked with the Hebrew women. And so in that moment, they felt too the anticipation of multiplying the guilt of this atrocity they'd been assigned, not only by the number of mothers they would attend, but they would carry the weight of passing on that murderous task to all the midwives who reported to them. That weight alone had to be crushing. And then there was the other thing. The notion they couldn't even quite bring themselves to voice 
out loud, though they both felt it. It chewed on them as they went back to their rounds, minds in a blur, tending to the pregnant women in their care as if by rote. It was still there, gnawing on them later that evening, as they were called in to attend for the first birth since the Pharaoh's edict had been laid on them. In the low lamplight of that sacred room, her own hands trembling, Shifra strained to hold the mother steady, not even knowing in that moment what she would do when the time came. Deep breathing for both mother and midwife. And when finally the child was born and Shifra placed into Pua's arms a perfect, healthy little girl. They looked deeply into one another's eyes. And each confirmed what the other had come to know in that moment. It was something about the tragic irony of their fate as women. The sense of scorching indignation that this infant child who held all the power and potential of the stars in her being, but who would become a woman and not a man, was in the eyes of the Pharaoh no more threat to him alive than she was dead. It was a sickening feeling, a sharp tearing at the moral fabric of their being, the feeling that on the one hand, this was no jealousy. Never in a million years would they wish a death sentence on this child. And at the same time, the feeling of anger rising in them like a cobra ready to strike. How dare he overlook me, underestimate us. And then in an instant, the shame that immediately rushed in for even having the thought at all. And then the rage at being put in a position to have to consider any of it in the first place. And in that moment, the child let out her first cry. And in that moment, the midwives knew what their work would be. They would deliver the children of the Hebrews, all of them, because in their faces they could see the image of God, male and female. They would knowingly lie to Pharaoh, using against him the very patriarchal assumptions that had inflamed their spirits. They would play the mystified woman. Those Hebrew women, they're just too quick for us. And although in the end, the Pharaoh's wrath would find a way to achieve its end, the midwives could not stave off forever the horror that was to come. By the time that it did, 
they had already set in motion the revolution that would change everything. It is no wonder that out of the fury born of this deep and unspeakable wound they carried came the first pulsing of the tidal wave of defiance that would eventually sweep Moses in the basket down the river, that would sweep the nation of Israel off their feet and across the sea toward liberation. It is no wonder that if, as scholars believe, Shifra and Pua weren't Hebrew but Egyptian, this rising spirit of revolt was enough to unite women across the lines of race and ethnicity to work for the good together in common cause. It is no wonder that with this subversive spirit in the air, Moses' mother was inspired to do what she needed to do to ensure the survival of her child keeping watch over the Pharaoh's daughter so that she knew when and where the princess would be, placing Moses in a basket in the reeds, empowering her own daughter, Miriam, to guide her brother to safety. And it is no wonder that the Pharaoh's own daughter knew enough of this wound, of the great overlooking that she willingly chose the bond of her shared womanhood over the order of her father, the king, when she opened the basket and pulled the child from the water. Her father had raged about the midwives and the Hebrews often enough that she knew who this child was. She knew what kind of choice she had made. Perhaps she even whispered a prayer of thanksgiving for Puah and Shifra, who had delivered this child as she lifted him into her arms and called him, my son. There is a reason unsung heroes often go unsung, uncelebrated. It usually has to do with the size of their sphere of influence. Those who are in a position of authority or power over multitudes are never lacking in praise for their good work. But the reason stories of unsung heroes touch us so deeply is because we can relate to feeling like we don't have much control, much say over our own lives or the lives of those around us. We too feel like our sphere of influence is small, and so our efforts too go unsung. I imagine, though, that most of us do know what it is to be angry. And not just angry in a self-justifying or self-righteous kind of way. This isn't about nursing grudges or harboring resentment. This is about anger that is grounded in love. 
What is it that causes the cobra in you to rise up, ready to strike on behalf of another? What injustice lights a fire in you deep in your bones? Where is the holy anger in you that hungers and thirsts for the justice of God? The invitation of the midwives is to become aware of that holy anger, to harness it, and then to find the place where that anger overlaps with whatever sphere of influence we call our own, no matter how large or how small. The stories of the unsung heroes, heroines of the Exodus are not pleasant or heartwarming tales as unsung hero stories tend to be. But here's to the angry ones, the ones who made hard choices, the ones who took an unbelievable risk, the ones who set a nation on the path toward liberation. May we too find the courage to harness our anger and to use it to set our feet and all those around us on the path toward freedom, the path that leads toward a merciful justice, justice in the name of love. Amen. Around this table, we remember Jesus' words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Around this table, we eat the bread of life, knowing God is as much a part of us, as close to us as this bread we receive.
Let us do this in remembrance of him. Around this table, we remember Jesus' words, I am the living water. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. Around this table, we drink the living water, knowing that the Spirit of God will become in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let us do this in remembrance of him. People of God, in the bread and the wine, behold what you already are and become more fully what you receive. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Thank you for being here with us this morning. We hope that in the stories, songs, and silence of this morning, the seeds of love within you have been watered. We have a couple of quick announcements to share with you. This week, we started a new Sunday School group that centers around the question, what does it take to experience well-being or happiness, even in this season? Even if you missed this morning, if this is a question that speaks to you, please consider joining us next week at 10 a.m. There's a link in the newsletter. And as always, if you believe in the mission of this community to continue to create spaces like this, please consider taking a moment to give. We cannot keep doing what we're doing without you. Remember that you can always join us in the Narthex Zoom chat directly following the service. If you want to continue the conversation about any of what has come up for you during the service today, or just to take a few minutes to say hello to some friendly faces and remind yourself that you are a part of this community. You can find a link in the newsletter or in the email where you received the order of worship. And now before I offer a word of benediction, let's join together in the closing hymn. Our closing hymn, Like a Mother Who Has Borne Us, refers back to the Exodus scripture where we learned of two women who chose life over death. This hymn was inspired by Hosea's depiction of the parental aspects of God's relationship with Israel. And this hymn refers to a God who still calls us all into life, like a mother who has borne us.
and now people of God receive this benediction. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain to joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. Amen. You are seen and you are loved. Go in peace. Thank you.